0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. Father, as we contemplate this miracle of Jesus, his mastery over wind and wave, his ability to command nature itself to rule over it, we ask that you would open our eyes to the significance of this event, that you in your word would speak to us of the meaning of Christ's work. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the uh, internet memes where the the phrase is something like this, uh, tell me that you're this without saying this. Uh, In my case, tell me that you're the teacher's pet without telling me that you're the teacher's pet. I think I can do it. I got an A in swimming class, but I can't swim to this day. I'm terrified of the water. Lori was always an avid swimmer, and it was one of the things that frustrated her about our marriage, maybe the only thing, really, that was imperfect about that union, that that we didn't, you know, swim together. And so she enticed me into the water, and I clung to the edge of the swimming pool. But they're slippery. It's hard to hold on and she would kind of swim over and pull at me and try to drag me into the deep water, she said, out of love. But uh, I know what it's like to be terrified of being plunged into the water. I know what it's like to uh, try to breathe underneath the water and find that you can't do it and to panic and to lose your sense of who you are. And so in this story, I can identify, as I'm sure you can, With Peter in his dilemma. In fact, I can identify more with Peter as he sinks than I can identify with him as he walks on the water with Jesus. It's interesting, Matthew's gospel is the only of the four gospels that gives us that that aspect of the miracle that we remember so vividly, Peter joining Jesus on the water. Others tell us about Jesus walking on the water, but only Matthew records what happens to Peter. I'm not sure why. It may be that uh, the others liked Peter too much to report on this embarrassing moment, and Matthew was like, no, I'm going to tell everybody what happens." Uh, whatever the reason is, that moment, I think, has come to define this text for us, so that when you preach this text, Peter kind of gives you the application, right? He tells you, basically, as long as your eyes are fixed on Jesus, then everything is going to be good, But if you begin to doubt, if you look away from Jesus, then you will find yourself sinking. In which case, don't worry, just cry out, save me, and Jesus is there to save you. End of sermon. Amen. When you start reading commentaries about this passage, you can sense a frustration that the scholars all have. And the frustration is that that's the way this sermon always goes. That the takeaway from this moment and this great miracle of Jesus's is primarily that little bit of application, that kind of moralistic encouragement to live a life where you're always focused on Jesus, focused on the right things, and never to look away. The reason the scholars are frustrated is they say that is not the main thing that's going on here. That's a, uh, let's say a minor note in comparison to the main thing that is happening. What we want to focus on as we see Jesus walking across the water is the meaning of his ability to do that and also the reaction of the men who witnessed it. So it's a good point, this application about Peter. We'll get to that later. But first, I want to think about what it means that Jesus walks on water. What it says about who He is, His identity, that He's able to do this thing. Because Jesus, in this act, was revealing Himself. He was revealing Himself, literally, to His disciples. As He approached them in their despair and their confusion, Jesus comes to them and He says, I am In the face of this revelation of Jesus, as they see what he's done, as he enters into the boat, they respond by worshiping him. If he says, I am, to them, they say, you are, to him, as they glorify his name. But Jesus doesn't just reveal himself here to them. He reveals himself to us so that we might join them in confessing that he is indeed who the disciples are believed him to be. Jesus says to them, I am he, it is I. And very subtly, beneath the surface, so to speak, he acknowledges something about his identity, his divinity. There was, in the opening phrases of this passage, a little bit of scene setting We've just seen the multitudes fed miraculously by Jesus. But what happens afterwards, of course, is, is a little bit strange. They seek to seize him and make him a king. And so Jesus puts a stop to that by sending the disciples away, by sending the crowds away, and by going away himself as well. The disciples he sends across the sea by boat. He'll meet them later. The crowds he sends to leave the desolate place and return to their homes. But Jesus goes to the mountaintop to pray alone by himself. Something that was a regular habit for Jesus. A reminder to us that we often get as we chronicle the life of Jesus, that Jesus had this rich life of prayer. We think about uh, his last night before his arrest, and the hours that he spent in prayer with the disciples, but that wasn't an unusual thing for them to do. Jesus was often in prayer. It's interesting that that would be the case, though, because Jesus, as the Son of God, probably had less need of prayer than any of us, if prayer is the thing that we often assume that it is, uh, a mechanism given to us by God to get the things that we need. Uh, an avenue, a channel of communication so that we let God know what's going on so that he can do something about it. Jesus knew better than any of us that God already knows what's going on. Jesus knew more than any of us what was going to take place. Jesus had the power more than any of us to provide for himself the things that he needed. So you would expect him to need prayer less than us, not more. And yet he devotes himself to prayer. Which really only makes sense when you consider the inter-Trinitarian communion from which he has departed, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in a kind of community of oneness together, this fellowship that exists within the person of God, so that in the incarnation, when Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us, he continues to commune with God through prayer. And when you realize that, the example that he sets for us is different than we imagine it is. We're called to the life of prayer, not because God knows we need things, but he wants to hear us say it. We're called to the life of prayer so that we might commune with him, so that we might be with him and enter into that inter-Trinitarian communion. Now, as Jesus sends the disciples away across the water, they're not setting off across the Atlantic Ocean, right? They're setting across a sea that they've traveled before. He's not putting them on some impossible task. These are fishermen. These are people who are accustomed to managing a boat. But as they set out, a strong wind starts to blow. It causes rough seas. According to John's Gospel, they're able to cover three or four miles over the course of the night. So they're able to get, depending on which direction they're going in, about halfway to a third of the way of where they're going, but no further. And they fight desperately to get that far, so that by the time they are reunited with Jesus, you can sense their desperation. They've begun to panic, to be overwhelmed, so that when they see Jesus coming, their first thought is not, oh, Jesus is coming, and that's strange, he's walking on water, it's a miracle. Instead, their first thought when they see him is, it's a ghost. Now, in case you're wondering whether ghosts are real, the Bible does not teach the reality of ghosts. But the Bible does maintain and chronicle for us a belief in ghosts, but what people believed was a little bit different than what we Tend to see today. Uh, we think in terms of haunted houses and and spirits that need to, to get revenge or some warm fuzzy things so that can go off to be in a better place. But sighting a ghost in dire circumstances like this for them was like an omen of death. The sort of spectral vision you might get before you yourself were sucked into the underworld. So the fact that they see the vision... This miracle, and interpret it as an omen of doom, really reveals the desperation of the disciples in that moment. Let's not forget, these are guys coming fresh off the back of the feeding of the 5,000. They have, have just departed from the presence of Jesus on a mission that he sent them on. But because of the difficulty of the task, By the time he encounters them again, they have kind of given up on everything that they've learned so far and are so desperate that they expect destruction. And they interpret Jesus as a fearful sign from the realm of the dead. There is, throughout Matthew 14 through 17, a question that is Less developed earlier in the gospel, but now is being sharpened to a fine edge. And it is the question of the identity of Jesus. Like, who is he really? And we see so many answers to that question. Herod thinks he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Other people say, no, he's Elijah returns, the Messiah. All these answers to the question, who he is. The fascinating thing here is the disciples aren't asking anymore who he is. They're so caught up in their circumstance that when they see him, they just think he's a ghost. They know who he is. They're just wrong about who he is. And then Jesus has to declare himself. As a husband, when I do incredible, even miraculous things, I'd like for my wife to just see how great they are and to praise me for them. If you have to explain... That what you did was great it takes some of the fun out of it right if if you take out the trash or do something like that really exceptional that, that ought to be you know heralded and then you have to come back into the house and say do you notice anything different about the trash cans it kind of i don't know it's not the same so jesus walks on the water he does this incredible thing he doesn't need a boat to join them he just walks over across the waves and they don't even realize it's him and he has to explain himself, and so he does. He says, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. If you take that response of Jesus and you kind of set it in your mind's eye on three lines, it's, it's a little bit like a sandwich. Right? And the, the main message is the identity it is I, but it's sandwiched between words of encouragement. And he says, Take heart. Do not be afraid. And in the heart of that message, uh, as an explanation maybe, for why they should be encouraged, his identity. It's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Take heart. It's me. They're so wrapped up in their struggle, they don't even recognize him. And so he says to them, it's me. Don't worry. He's not rebuking them. He's comforting them. He's comforting them by reminding them who he is. But there's something in the words that he says that's interesting. In John's gospel, if you were to flip over to John's gospel, not to John 6, which was the parallel to the feeding of the 5,000, but to John chapter 8, There's a moment at the end of John chapter 8 when the people who are listening to what Jesus is saying decide, you know what we should do? We should stone this guy to death. And they pick up stones and they attempt to stone him. Now the reason that they react to what Jesus is saying is because of a formula of words that he speaks. You may be familiar with those words. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's not confused about verb tenses there. He's not meaning to, to say before Abraham was, I was. He intentionally says before Abraham was, I am. The words that he's speaking in, in Greek, ego, emi, I am are an intentional echo of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which he reveals to Moses in Exodus 3, in the bush that burns but is not consumed. The reason why his critics want to stone him is that Jesus is using language that asserts his divinity. He's affiliating himself with the covenant God, of Israel, in a way that they believe is blasphemous. He declares his identity to them, in a way that declares his divinity to them, as well. And if you have ears to hear, he does the same thing here, as he speaks to his disciples, because he speaks in the same words: "Ego, a me, I am." translated for us in the English, it is I, which is a legitimate translation. But it is literally the same words that he speaks in John 8. I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. With all the questions swirling around the identity of Christ, he reveals himself and he says, I am. He's answering the question, but he's giving more answer than anyone is really looking for. At best, they're looking for a king to come in the line of David, a Messiah, an anointed one, and the question they're asking themselves is, is he the one? Is he the king who was promised? They're not asking, is he God? Is he divine? And yet Jesus begins to hint at a reality that they haven't even imagined. A reality that will become greater and greater, come more into focus as the gospel proceeds. Yes, he is the one. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he is the Messiah. But also, yes, he is God in the flesh, incarnate. He is the word made flesh to dwell among us. That's who he is. His actions, his lordship over creation, his ability to walk over the water as if it were dry lands is simply an expression of who he is. It's an echo of the word that he speaks. In the same way that we preach the word and then we administer the sacraments because the word interprets the sign, The word explains the meaning of the action that you see. Here, Jesus interprets the sign with his words. He walks on the water because he is God. Because he made it all. Because it is all his realm that he rules over sovereignly. And in answer to this, the disciples respond as human beings should. When God reveals Himself, they worship Him in the boat. They worship Him. They glorify His name. Now, of course, this story may sound a little bit familiar to you because we actually had a little incident in a boat earlier in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 8, they were traveling over the waters, Jesus was asleep in the boat. And things were getting pretty dicey and the disciples were concerned that Jesus wasn't paying attention. And so they rebuked him. They're like, do you see what's going on? How can you be sleeping at a moment like this? And so Jesus woke up. He's like, what are you guys worried about? And then he commanded the wind and the storm to behave themselves and they were immediately calmed. No problem. It's not recorded whether or not he went back to sleep after that. The question that the disciples ask themselves, is what manner of man is this? Who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their minds are filled with wonder when they witness this. That's Matthew 8. This is Matthew 14. That doesn't happen here. When he walks over the water and he joins them in the boat and the winds cease and everything's calm, they don't say, what manner of man is this? They already know What manner of man is this? The answer has been demonstrated to them. You are the son of God. They worship him. They worship him. They don't wonder. They worship. It's interesting though. That's a pretty quick movement when you think about it. They're worshiping Jesus. They're saying you are the son of God. And like a minute ago they were saying you are a ghost. Like, how reliable (laughs) is the faith of these disciples? If uh, you come to church and take membership vows, you profess your faith in God during the service, but right before the service, you come up to me and say, he's a ghost. I'm going to be skeptical that you could get from this place to that place so quickly. Right? Like, I want to see a track record to this understanding. And yet, for the disciples, it's crazy how quickly they move back and forth. He feeds 5,000. He's amazing. There's a storm. He's a ghost. He walks on water. He's a son of God. And they worship him. (laughs) You have to think what they've witnessed to see them move so quickly from one place to another they witness a storm being calmed, but they've witnessed that before. Here they've seen Jesus walk on water as if it were land. And they also, as Matthew says, have seen Peter do the same thing. Even if momentarily one of them walked out to meet Jesus on the water. And when that man sank, they saw Jesus reach out and save him from drowning. That's what they witnessed that put those words into their mouths. They saw his power, but they saw more than that. They saw their inclusion in it. Before we go farther on that point, though, I just want to point something out about Peter's faith. Peter walks on water. This is this remarkable thing that happens. Peter walks across to Jesus. But then he starts looking around him. He sees the the, the waves. He's fearful, Matthew says, and he begins to sink. Peter has faith. But in this narrative, that faith actually, literally, fails. Peter's faith fails right before the face of Jesus. And yet, Jesus doesn't fail to save Peter. That's something to think about you are not saved by your faith. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved by Jesus. And there's a difference. Now you may object and say, wait a second, I thought you said we're saved by grace through faith. Yes, but it's the same difference because grace equals Jesus. Jesus. That's what grace means. When we talk about grace, we're not talking about some abstract, disembodied property or, or quantity. Grace isn't, it isn't a substance apart from Jesus. Grace is Jesus. It's Jesus' favor. It's what He does. It's His love set upon you. That's what grace is. We are saved by Jesus through faith, and the faith is a gift, not a work. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The most important lesson Peter teaches us here is in his failure, literally. He doesn't have the faith to walk, even though Jesus is right there in his presence. Think about it. Face to face with Jesus and still distracted by the wind and the waves. Still unable to to focus on Jesus, even though he's so close, he can touch you. If Peter doesn't have enough faith to stand in that moment, what hope is there for any of us to stand in the strength of our faith? If we were saved by the strength of our faith, we wouldn't be saved at all. It's Jesus who reaches out. It's Jesus who grabs us. He is grace and he saves us. He gives us the faith. And that's something we have to remember. That power of Jesus to reach out and save is at least as impressive, arguably much more so, than his power to walk on water. The disciples witness that power, and they're convinced. They know. They have an instinct. Maybe like the disciples who gathered around Jesus at the triumphal entry. The people who didn't know why they were shouting, "'Hosanna!' couldn't explain theologically what was going on, but somehow they just knew. The Spirit called them. He gave them the words, and they worshipped their Creator and Savior in that moment. The disciples do the same thing here. They know you are the Son of God, and they worship Him there in the boat, having witnessed, like I say, not just His power, but their inclusion in that power. Peter doesn't just see Jesus walking on water. He walks. And he also gets saved by that power as well. For a moment, Peter, a human being, and let's face it, not even the best of human beings, exercises the same dominion over creation that Jesus does. He does what Jesus does. Now, don't think that Peter is some sort of egomaniac when he sees Jesus walking in water and says, hey, I'd like this special power too. Let me do it, as if he's being presumptuous. The point of having a rabbi and being a student of a rabbi is that the student follows the master's example. It makes sense that Peter sees Jesus doing something and thinks, am I meant to do that too? And if you think about what Peter does in that moment, it's fascinating, right? He he just accepts the idea that he too could enter into this act. So Peter, for a moment, recognizes that dominion. But he also feels the rescue of the power of Jesus. He's included in the salvation, not just in the reigning. He gets a taste of kingship, but he also gets a taste of salvation as well. So the disciples, having witnessed all this, having benefited from what they've witnessed, acknowledge that Jesus is divine. But in their worship, they don't just acknowledge that he is God. They also implicitly acknowledge their inclusion in him. He is our God. He is here for us and with us. And that gives a context, too, to what happens at Genesaret afterwards, as Jesus goes and he heals the people there, as they touch the hem of his garment and are made whole. Healing is a great example of this same relationship. It's not just a manifestation of the power of God. It is also a demonstration of human inclusion in the power of God. Not just that God has the strength, but that the strength is for you. That's what's being pictured here for us in this miracle. Jesus doesn't just want you to be in awe of his power. He wants you to be assured and comforted by your inclusion in it. It's not just, worship me. I'm the creator and king of all things. It's to be comforted because the creator and king of all things loves you and is here to rescue you. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. I said at the beginning we'd come back to this, we're coming back to it. Peter, in his example, does teach us some valuable things. When others are fearful, be bold and be brave for them. What Peter does here is an act of leadership. Like Peter goes out to meet Jesus on the waves, and he seems to be acting as a kind of go-between. The disciples in the boat are fearful. Peter says... If it is you, then command me to come onto the water and join you. It's as if he's confirming what Jesus said for the sake of those in the boat, to reassure them, to bridge the distance. That's boldness on Peter's part. But it's also a kind of servant leadership, right? That he does this on behalf of the disciples around him, even though he has the same fears that they have. And in that sense, I think, he sets a good example for us. And of course, the obvious lesson to focus on Jesus, not on circumstances. It's obvious for a reason. It's a good lesson. It's something that we could all stand to remember. As long as Peter's eyes are fixed on Jesus, then Peter has dominion. But once his eyes are fixed on his circumstances, then he's overwhelmed by fear, strangely, perspective is everything. If he sees things rightly, the world is different than if he sees them wrongly. If he acts on the belief that Jesus is God and that he can fulfill what Jesus commands him to do, then he thrives. But if he acts on the belief that he is in danger, In a world surrounded by perils, he does indeed sink. Focus on Jesus, not on circumstances. And call upon Jesus, and you will be saved. The most beautiful moment, I think, is is the fact that that in his despair, which you have to think is, is not a process, if you've ever sunk through the water and realized, oh, I'm not floating. Oh, I'm going to go down to the bottom. You don't have a lot of time for thinking in a moment like that. You kind of go straight from everything's fine to horrible panic. I'm about to be swallowed by sea monsters and die. Just like that. But the only thought he forms is the one that that he vocalizes. Save me. Save me. He may not have a perfect faith, but he knows who to call on. For rescue. The thing about it is, you only ever make that cry when you know you're in danger. Peter easily could have slipped under the surface and drowned and not realized he was in danger. Many of us do exactly that with no cognizance of the danger or with, and with no sense that we have any need for salvation. We never call upon him because we don't even realize we're drowning. We don't even realize our very lives are at stake. But if you know you're in danger, that cry is easy. It comes naturally. When we know that we're sinners. When we know that we stand condemned. When we know that no strength of ours can deliver us, then we cry out, Save us. And the words come easily to our lips. If you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, or their sandals, There are some interesting things to learn as well. Jesus is the bread of life. That's the whole point of the feeding of the 5,000. And yet, the disciples' lives illustrate that having the bread of life doesn't mean no more struggles. After that miraculous providence, Jesus sends them out on the water by themselves. And things go really badly for them. They go from providential abundance straight to abandoned alone in the storm with very little transition. Now that trouble, that storm, should never take the followers of Jesus unaware because we haven't been saved from hardship. We've been saved for hardship, for obedience. The storms shouldn't be a surprise. The disciples are not cut adrift. The storm doesn't mean things have gone awry, Jesus intended them to make it to the other side uneventfully, but then things happened that Jesus hadn't anticipated. The storm that they face is part of the plan. And as disciples, the storm is there to sanctify them. So the fact that we are in Christ doesn't mean there are no more struggles. It also doesn't mean quick deliverance from trouble. The disciples don't realize, hey, the wind is against us. Hey, this is getting difficult. And then Jesus suddenly comes to himself on the mountain in the middle of his prayers and says, wait a second, the disciples are having trouble. I need to get down there quickly. No, he prays all night. He really drags it out. Like he's up there for a long time. They are at their wits end before he shows up. Even though he knows their need. Jesus is not a helicopter savior flying over the disciples, seeing to every little thing, because he doesn't want them to endure any hardship. He doesn't rush to the boat as soon as things get difficult. But it's not because he's just leaving them to their fate. Any more than he leaves us to our fate, they haven't been left to endure. They were meant to endure. They've been called to endure. This is part of it. And maybe, having endured more storms, eventually they would get to the point that when he came to them, they would see him for who he was and not mistake him for something else because the whole time they endured the hardship they would have expected it to come when the time was right and not lost hope. That's the last thing I think they can teach us because I said Jesus doesn't rebuke them He comforts them. But there is a little rebuke towards the end. There is a little you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And that's interesting. Because from our point of view, I think the doubt makes a lot of sense. If you put me on a boat by myself and cast me adrift, and I struggled all night desperately, probably sent up a few prayers that seemingly went unanswered, And then at the very end of my struggle, as I was about to give up, Jesus walks across the water and ends it like that, which he could have done from the very beginning. And then says, you have little faith. I said, well, yeah, obviously people who suffer like this have good reason not to have faith. Look at the life that you gave me. Look at the struggle. If you called me to this, how could you expect me to have a strong faith? Well, the hard circumstances don't justify a lack of faith. It turns out, yes, they were expected to endure hard things faithfully. They were expected to endure the storm and have faith at the same time. The circumstances didn't justify unbelief. In other words, suffering doesn't let us off the hook. That's hard for me to say, because I'll tell you, the orientation of my heart is different. When people suffer, and then they blame God, they suffer, and then they say things that aren't theologically accurate, I cut them slack. I say things like, hey, look, you, you don't judge people for the things they say in the hardest moment of their life. Let's, let's be gracious. Let's extend mercy towards people. And, and I, I think on some level that that's good advice. And yet I see Jesus doing something a little bit different here. Like Jesus is telling people in the midst of suffering, hey, you have little faith. You should have had more faith. Faith, I think, is connected to that kind of endurance. Faith is meant to grow as a result of trusting him in hard circumstances. Jesus rebukes doubt, and if he rebukes it, it's because we're expected to endure faithfully and to grow in faith as a result. All of these are lessons that we can take from meditating on this story, but there is really just one important lesson, I think, and it comes in the fact that Jesus does save, that Peter doesn't sink and drown, that Peter, whatever fault, There may be in his faith is delivered into the boat safely and that the disciples together worship knowing that they've been delivered not by their own strength not by anything they've done but by him and by him alone and what's true for them is true for us as well our salvation is in him alone and we should respond by worshiping him by confessing that he is god by worshiping him as they worshiped him Confess that he is your God and that you are in him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.